This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. He is risen. This is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. Uh, it is the greatest holiday on the Christian calendar. Don't get me wrong, we love Christmas, right? I mean, we love Christmas. It's where Jesus came to, uh, where we celebrate that Jesus came to be incarnated, came as a baby to live among us. Um, but Easter holds a special place, holds a very special place in Christian history and doctrine. And today I hope to explore that a little bit. Um, to open, I'd like to share a story. Um, Cynthia Stafford was a woman who lived in California. She was raising five children who were not her own. They were uh, her nieces and nephews, so they were her, her brother's children who was killed in a drunk driving accident. So she was single parenting, uh, five children that she suddenly inherited in life was difficult. It was difficult financially. It was difficult logistically. Um, there were many things about her life that had been utterly changed by this particular moment. But also in 2007, she won $112 million in the California lottery. And on that day, her life changed again. Now, I don't know everything that she did with the money, right? I do know that she started a business and was able to send some of the kids to college because that's what the news article that I read said about it. I don't know her personally, but I do know that on that day, the context of her life changed, where once it was, I don't know how to get through this next day. There are simply ends that are not going to be met. Two, being able to dream about the future. Now, obviously, money cannot solve all of our problems, and there are plenty of lottery winner, winner, winner stories uh, to exemplify that. You could just go look them up. Lots of articles. Um, but... Christianity looks at the resurrection as one of those events which radically changes our life. It should radically change our life. And yet, the resurrection is something that happened 2,000 years ago. What about this event changes our life so drastically? Well, today we're going to investigate that question through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you would, please stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. This is almost the last time I'll make you stand and sit down. I know we do a lot of that here, but it's okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most 
to be pitied. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord does indeed stand forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So we're exploring this question of why the resurrection is such a significant event in our lives that Paul would say that we are above all most to be pitied if it's untrue. Um, Paul mentions a lot in this passage, and I'm sure I could preach probably 10 or 15 sermons over this passage, and we still have new things to discover. That's uh, the amazing part about God's word. Uh, But we're going to focus on three areas. So for you note-takers, it's a fruitful faith, a clean conscience, and a different narrative. So the resurrection of Christ, according to Paul, changes our life because it gives us a fruitful faith, a clean conscience, and a different narrative. So the first is a fruitful faith. There are certain things that we want to be fruitful or to be productive. I think working out is one of those things. I mean, we all have various motivations for why we want to work out, but we're always focused on the end result, right? I would, most of us are, I think, right? We would all agree with this. There's either some pounds lost or some inches lost or some maybe inches gained, but we're always looking at the gains. What's the end result? And so we get motivational quotes like these, the pain you feel today will be your strength of tomorrow. Suffer now and be a champion for the rest of your life. But sometimes we recognize that like, man, these kind of focus on the ends distorts some of the means and we can have this tendency to become like obsessive uh, and actually destructive to ourselves. And so then we end up with quotes like these, the only bad workout is the one that didn't happen. Now, we understand that in the right context, and the person experiencing the right thing. These motivational quotes can be just that, highly motivational. They can drive us to pursue that thing. Uh, They can encourage us that it is in the day-to-day action that forms us into the kind of person that lives a healthy life. But the question resounds when we kind of look at how we work out is how how are we going to measure growth? How are we going to measure growth? productivity? How will I know if I've been productive? And the question for Paul, if you look in verses 14 and 17, this productivity of faith, how are we going to measure the productivity of faith? In verses 14 and 15, he says that your faith without Christ's resurrection is vanity. It's vain. It's purposelessness. It's unproductive. Your faith is useless if Christ was not raised from the dead. Now, the resurrection's kind of unbelievable, right? Like, you guys know anybody that's risen from the dead? Like, it's not something that we experience. We would hear that and be like, somebody rose from the dead? And there have been many people who have tried to take Christianity, and they say, you know what, actually, it doesn't really matter if Christ rose from the dead. If you have faith in the life of Christ, and you follow after him and how he lived, then the same ends are achieved. That's not what Paul seems to think. Paul seems to think that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely fundamental to our faith, and that without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ— our faith is meaningless. So what is it about the Christian faith that necessitates the resurrection? 
The book of Hebrews describes faith this way. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians that our faith should primarily be placed in the assurance and conviction that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's what it means to have faith. I believe that the tomb is empty, that we won't find his bones. Why does this make our faith more productive instead of unproductive? Like, why, why, why can't we have a productive faith without it? Well, we believe that Jesus lives now and that your faith tends to root you in something for the energy that you're going to find to do the things that you want to do. And so we often try to root ourselves in lots of different things. Sometimes it's ourselves and our own self-motivation. But if, uh, you know, barring Jesus' return, we're going to die. We are dying beings. Sometimes we root it in other dead people. And just like any vine, as the um, gospel writer John um, will say, like we're connected to the vine and that gives us life. Any vine that's connected to something that's dead will not bear fruit. In order to bear fruit, you need to be connected to something alive. We believe that Jesus lives now, that his life flows through that vine into us, and that it actually produces in us this productive faith, that the life-giving one is the one that gives us life. You see, the rest of the world's religions still hope that people will change, but none of them claim something like resurrection. Muhammad died. Buddha died. Confucius died. Great leaders of various other religions died. Great leaders in the Christian faith have died. If you root your faith in another Christian leader besides the living one, Christianity says that fruit comes, life-giving fruit comes, because it is rooted in the living one. Jesus' body isn't here. We won't ever find the bones. And this life that flows through us bears certain kinds of fruit. And Galatians will describe it this way. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. And I'd just like you to notice that actually faith is one of those fruits. Paul seems to have this idea that our faith is gifted by and rooted in the one that it's connected to. And this one that came to rescue us grows this faith that connects us to him and so produces these changes in our character that are actually produced not from an ability of just trying to be a better person and merit God's love, not because we're just trying to be assumed into the divine or reach some state of utter peace, but because we are connected to one whose life overflows and it overflows into us and then we overflow out into the world. That's Paul's understanding of a productive faith. Even when we make mistakes, even when we sin, by God's grace, we go back and we have the ability to say, I messed up, to own that response and so spread more love into the world instead of doubling down on our own version of events and thinking that we did everything right. Faith in the resurrected one 
is a living faith, a faith with a heartbeat. The first thing that the resurrection does for us, for us is give us a productive faith. The second thing that we get is a clean conscience. Now, I helped my uncle train hunting dogs for competition once. I grew up in Kansas. You know, some of you know this. Okay, so this, it's a, I didn't really understand what I was doing. I was a teenager, I don't know, 16 or 17. I went out with him. He'd give me a bag of dead ducks and then blank 22s. And then, like, tell me where to hike out to. You know, Kansas is flat, so you can just see forever. So just, you know, that far, a couple hundred yards. Sometimes it was snowing. Sometimes I'd cross a creek and some other stuff. It was kind of messy business. I'd stand out there, and then I would wait for his signal. And then I would take one of these ducks and throw it up into the air and then fire the blank 22 when it was at, like, the apex of its thing so that it would fall to the ground. Now, the dog was supposed to wait, because it's being entered into competition, right? It's supposed to wait for my uncle's command before it runs to chase the duck. But there's one particular dog that had a problem with braking, and so it wasn't waiting for the command. Now, the solution that my uncle had was um, violent but pragmatic, which was giving a 50-foot rope or chain that was anchored to something that wasn't going to move. And so when that dog broke and it ran, it got to like, you know, full speed, about 50, and then hit, hit that anchor and then didn't go anymore. That chain held that dog back from what that dog was made to do. And eventually, the dog learned not to break. Now, I'm kind of using um, a, an obscure part of the story because that chain was holding that dog back from what it wanted to do, from what it wanted to be, what it was made to be in some sense. Like, we're coming in as human beings and training this dog to do something else, and that's fine, you know? But like, what that dog was made to do was like, go get that duck. In verse 17, Paul says in our passage that we have something that's holding us back from who we were made to be. He says that if Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sin. And our sin has chained us. It's bound us to death in a particular way. And one way that sin does this is by continuing to pour upon us a stained conscience. Now, this kind of happens in two ways. We have a stained conscience because of the actions that we ourselves have done. Like, we've recognized that we have perpetuated horrors in this world. There's things that haunt us about what we've said to people, how we've treated people, usually the people that we love most. The other way is, is sometimes we have been experienced. We've experienced the horrors of the world. There have been things done to us that we would tremble to name. There's a pain and hurt in the world, and it chains us. I don't want to undermine the reality of sin, pain, and suffering in the world. And if you weren't here on Good Friday, we talked a lot about that reality. But my goal today is to talk about how that reality is fixed and how we become unchained. And the question was, was whether or not what Jesus did on that cross was going to be sufficient. Like we say that Jesus Christ died to forgive us our sins. And on Friday, we talked a little bit about what forgiveness means. It means absorbing the losses. When you say, I forgive you, you say, I choose not to bring these up anymore. I'm, I'm going to absorb that pain and that hurt. Well, what did absorbing the pain and the hurt look like on Good Friday? It looked like death on a cross. Now, the question was, the reason that death holds us is because that suffering isn't enough. It's chained us. 
It's not good enough to actually pay for the wrong done. And so the question for Jesus was, not just was he going to die for our sins, but was he going to rise? When Jesus Christ died and suffered and absorbed all of that pain and loss, was it going to be enough? And in case you've missed it, he is risen. He's risen indeed. Death looked at him and said, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And old Christian theologians will say that death spat him back out like Jonah was spat out of the whale. Like death looked at him and was like, that's wrong. You can't be here. And back into life he came. Death no longer had any claim over him because there was nothing left to absorb. He was successful because he's no longer in the grave. Now our consciences can be unchained from those sins, both the ones that we have committed and those ones done against us. And please, I do want you to hear, these, it's not an easy process. But it is finished. It is done, and it is complete. So because of the resurrection, we have seen that our faith is productive and our conscience is clear because Christ rose from the grave. But there's one more area for us to consider, and that's that we have a different narrative. Um, do you guys have like background music playing in your brain all the time? Some of you do. I know I've talked to people about this. Like they just kind of walk around with like music in their head and they're just like drumming on things, da, da, da. like whenever they're doing tasks, right? Not all of us do. But some of you do. You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, if you don't, then you can also think of like movies and montages. There's like these themes that are created in movies that help like set the mood, right? It sets the mood for the whole movie. And so for some of those movies, it's really eerie and unsettling. Some of those movies, it's really confident and triumphalistic. Paul, in verse 19 here, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, will say that we are above all most to be pitied. And he's kind of tying this idea back to like those who have died have no hope. They've died in Christ and, and now they're perished if he didn't rise. Because for Paul, the resurrection means that the background music of the world has changed. See, the biblical idea is this, and this is what Paul is drawing on, is that the background music of the world is actually quite morbid. And if we would somewhat agree with this if we're honest with ourselves. Like, this life is really all that we have. It's why we feel so much sorrow, for instance, when we have to choose like one college major over the other, or certain doors close and we're never going to be able to go back because that, that opportunity has passed and that ship has sailed. Because this life is all you've got. We try to accumulate as much stuff as we can because this is all we've got. I mean, we might believe in some sort of afterlife. Don't get me wrong. And it might be spiritually amended when we're no longer human, but we kind of become something else. Like maybe we're reincarnated or we become part of the divine or we become like these spirits that just kind of float into nothingness. But you, as you know yourself today, dies. And it's over. 
I think we believe that Christianity follows similar principles in these. We just kind of like import them. And sometimes we just like double down on them. It's like, oh, when we die, we're going to become angels. I would encourage you to go find that in Scripture. We don't become angels. That's not, that's not our end. It's not what we're supposed to be doing. But somehow that like crept into our like Christian psyche. And so we're just like, I don't know, we become angels later. And you're like, no, you don't become angels. There's already angels. We subconsciously believe that we're actually supposed to be liberated from our bodies. So we normalize death because we believe that that's what God actually wants. And honestly, I think it's probably an escape from the sorrow of death. We look at death and all of its horror and we say, well, the only way that I can make sense of this is that this is the way that God wanted it to be. But when Jesus was confronted by death, he wept. I hope that when you're confronted with death, that you realize no one should want it. Even after a life ends with a great deal of suffering and pain from some chronic illness, we might view it as some sort of mercy, but really we're sorrowful that such a plague existed. Even if a person caused a great deal of pain and damage in your life, you might be thankful that the burden seems to be lifted, but really it's a deep sorrow that that relationship was not the way that it should have been. It's a mourning over what should have been. The background music of the world is death. And we try to make it sound good because we can't stand the uncomfort and the, the dissonance, the fact that it doesn't quite make sense to us. So I've talked about a couple of problems with these. I'm just going to summarize them real quick. Um, first, if we normalize death, we, send, we tend to not feel the sorrow as strongly as we should. Um, on the adverse, actually, um, if we think that death is, is the end, then there is no hope for you in sorrow. When you've lost someone dearly loved, there's no hope because it's over. Along with death, we tend to normalize sin. If this is kind of the background music of the world, then sin also has this normalcy where we're just like, I don't know, that's just how the world works. You just kind of need to suck it up and deal with it. And so we can't appropriately mourn the brokenness of the world. One more, in, in making the spiritual the ideal, we denigrate our bodies. As if God carried, cared very little for these, like, meat suits. I think I've heard someone describe them once, which I was like, ooh. But the description nonetheless. As if God didn't care for them. But, you know, with Christmas and Easter, our two high holidays, I'd like you to think very carefully about what God came to do. Be in a body and resurrect a body. We are most of all to be pitied if Christ isn't raised because the background music of the world hasn't changed at all. And we are just lying to ourselves. There's no reason to do any of this. The mood of the movie is set and it's just the way that it is and we are naive if Christ is not raised from the dead. 
Recognizing the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that the background music of your life changes. And of course, it's still touched by pain and suffering, but it is not ultimately dictated by it. The background music of our lives is now new and old. It actually harkens back to the very beginning of our Bibles where things were good, very good. It is healing and it is wholeness. It is no more tears and it is forgiveness. It is a relationship with God. It harkens back to creation, but it supersedes it because it's going to be better. It is good. It is very good. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the event that changes all of human history. It is the fundamental holiday in the Christian calendar. It is where our story changes, where our consciences are cleared, and we actually learn to bear fruit. The resurrection of Jesus Christ ultimately says that death and sin will have no sting. Death and sin will have no victory. The resurrection of Jesus Christ declares that the old music of the world is not the way that it should be. And the king will not let it stay that way. He arrives and he says, I will indeed right all wrongs. I will wipe away every tear. Every tomb will indeed be empty. Everyone will resurrect from the dead because I am king and I am saving my creation. The invitation again and again and again from Jesus, if you were to read through the Bible, is to see him as God sees him, the reconciler of all humanity, of all creation, the rightful king and heir, the best human, the human that, that lived as they were supposed to and went even above and beyond, absorbing the hurt for the whole world to make everything right. And the invitation that he has when he walked on this earth and what he speaks to us through his word is again and again to see him like that, to place our faith in Christ's resurrection. Come and see the empty tomb and hope. Come and see the empty tomb and live. Would you pray with me? Father, what can we say? Jesus Christ is risen, and our whole world has changed. By the power of your Spirit, do not leave us unchanged from this event. Allow it to revolutionize our lives. Allow it to resurrect our lives as we place our hope and faith in Christ's resurrection, that he will indeed come to make all things right, that he will indeed come to reign over us forever. And we ask this in his name. Amen.